Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Happy 100th episode of Artist Soapbox. As the 2020 Piedmont Laureate, this year I'm featuring a series of local playwrights who will discuss their work, their writing process, and their wisdom. I'm excited to bring you this conversation with my friend, Lormerov Jones, playwright and performer of her original solo piece, My Geriatric Uterus. My Geriatric Uterus is a bold, brazen, and brash solo play that examines the expectations placed on women's bodies against the backdrop of late-stage capitalism. Written and performed by Lormerov Jones, featuring music by Christopher Wood, My Geriatric Uterus premiered at the 2019 Cincinnati Fringe Festival and was the winner of the David C. Harriman Artist's Pick of the Fringe. In this conversation with Lormerov Jones, we talk about the writing and development process for My Geriatric Uterus, collaborating while developing a solo piece, writing tips, self-care, and more. Lormerov Jones is a freelance director, choreographer, and educator currently based in Raleigh. She received her MFA in theater from Sarah Lawrence College. Lormerov has served as a director and choreographer at many theaters and high schools in the Triangle, including North Carolina State, Meredith College, Raleigh Charter High School, Raleigh Little Theater, and many more. She is also a divisor, playwright, and solo performer. She currently teaches at North Carolina State University and Meredith College, her alma mater, while continuing to freelance in all her areas of expertise. On a personal note... I happened to grow and expel two children from my own geriatric uterus. And yes, if you didn't know, geriatric pregnancy is a real thing that doctors put in your file if they don't write advanced maternal age or elderly multigravida instead. And depending on the doctor, during both of my pregnancies, especially my most recent one, I was definitely made to feel like I had somehow screwed up by not having my children at a younger age. And this was during a very healthy pregnancy with all signs pointing to healthy outcomes for both me and my child. In any case, I have a lot of feelings about how women's bodies are policed and managed, bullied and shamed. These aggressions are things I have been tracking for as long as I can remember. It seems like everyone, I mean everyone, feels like they have the right to have an opinion about a woman's body, except that woman. You'll hear Lormerov talk about the choice not to have children, about the uterus and menstruation, aging, productivity, money, capitalism, and so on. And somehow, she manages to do so with some humor, some bite, and some singing. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Lermerov. Thank you so much for this conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'd like to talk about playwriting with you. Your last two pieces have been solo performance pieces, The Virgin Cookbook and My Geriatric Uterus. You perform solo. Did you write them as a solo playwright? The process for them was begun with the intention that I would be the only performer on stage. The first one was a um, was my thesis for grad school at Sarah Lawrence, and it sort of developed into a multi-character 
piece that also used music and object puppetry um, in the storytelling. And then for my geriatric uterus, again, I knew that I was going to be the only performer on stage and it actually did morph a little bit because my partner um, in life and now in art as well um, is a musician. He plays several instruments. And so, and I knew that I wanted there to be music in in that show. And so he became a very useful resource. And so he popped out a couple of times in the show as a sort of a, a sidekick type of character, but very briefly had like one section of text, which he was very troubled by having to memorize, but um, <laughs> became a very minor character. Um, it was still basically 15 pages of text and 14 and a half of them were mine. Could you talk a little bit about your process for my geriatric uterus, since that's the most uh, recent production. Sure, absolutely. I got the idea for my geriatric uterus in 2017. So this would have been shortly after the previous time that we spoke, because we spoke in like January of 2017, which is so weird to think about that that's how <laughs> long this idea was in my head. But I was turning 34 in that year. and was unemployed with a mountain of student debt and a master's degree and couldn't find a job. I had left a job basically due to poor management and I was looking for new jobs that were non-theatrical. So I knew that it was going to be a bit of an uphill climb, but I've had, you know, what I call secular jobs. I've had jobs in the <laughs> non-theater world. I've been a standardized patient director. I've been an administrative assistant. I've been a manager. I've, I've done jobs in the non-theater world. So I was thinking like at least an admin administrative assistant job, like something. And it was really heartbreaking to realize like, oh, right. Like I have a master's degree now, which with it comes a certain expectation of pay. And the reality being no one wants to pay someone an MFA salary for a job that is, you know, and for a person with a BA or maybe even not that. And so I got really, really jaded and really, really upset and started doing a lot of reading about the concepts and the pitfalls of capitalism, which we talked about this briefly in my, in my last interview, but mm -hmm. basically just started thinking about I'm 34 and I feel useless and I and I'm about to be 35 which is like you know the number of doom for women because <laughs> it's when you know it's when you're supposedly not supposed to be having kids anymore because your uterus is getting a little old and I so I started like bringing all these concepts together and thinking about how they mended and literally did nothing else but think about that for the next six months to a year. So I applied to the Cincinnati Fringe Festival with this idea about a group of people. It wasn't originally thought of as a solo piece. It started as a group of people talking about how they got screwed by capitalism. And then it, sort, and then it really just narrowed where I was like, no, this is unfortunately, this is a story about me and the way that I have so very often placed my worth in how much work I do and how productive I am as a member of society and how, uh, how killer, like how destructive that can be when you are a person out of work. And so that idea was accepted to the Cincy Fringe, which meant, oh God, I now have to write it. And the big thing that hit me 
is I am a woman of a certain age. I really like my life. I'm an artist. I really don't want to have kids. However, this thing inside of me has a different aim, has a different purpose. And in theory, and I'm not saying I subscribe to this, but in theory, its purpose has not been fulfilled. It has not, there it is, potential. Its potential has not has not been realized because uteruses are there or uteri, depending on how you feel, are there to have babies. And I haven't done that. And so I decided that that is a separate character from me. That idea is a separate character from who I am. What my uterus wants is very different from what I want. And that's a character. And oh, that's a puppet. (laughs) And that's where the idea came from. I was like, oh my God, it's a puppet. And it's not going to be like a sock puppet. Like it's not going to be like Sherry Lewis with lamb chop where it's like by my side. No, it needs to exist where my uterus actually is just, you know, in bigger form. And so that's where the the character of facetious Jones came to life. That's by the, the name of my uterus in the show. So, and then the musical element was really, really organic. It's super weird to think about now, but I was having this discussion about this play, like we are right now, at a friend's house, at um, Renee Wimberly's house. I think you've interviewed her. And, yeah. Oh yeah, you definitely have. And I was, I'm, we're good friends. I was at her house. Her husband is a bass player. And I was just talking with them about this show and how I thought maybe a puppet was going to be a part of it. And Joe Wimberly says, well, let me get, let me get my bass and we'll just like riff. And then I just improv, improvised this song about having an empty uterus. And that was, and like, we didn't sit down and think about it or write it. It just happened where I was singing about how my uterus was empty and how grateful I was that it was empty. And that became the first song ever written, even though I, it feels like cheating to say I wrote it. I mean, I did, but it really just was me sitting in the living room with a musician and just singing about what I was already feeling and all of the stuff that I had already been gelling. So that was the easy part. And then the writing of it became the hard part. Very often, at least in the solo work that I've done, I'm always looking for what the frame is, like what is this frame? What what makes the show happen? Like, why is the story being told? And and what what is the anchor for it? So, in Virgin Cookbook, it was a cooking show, obviously, and the frame was this is a cooking show about how to make a virgin. Like that was the that was the anchor for it. That's why the story was being told. And I was having trouble coming up with what is that for this show? Like, why is this character? Why does this character have a puppet of her uterus? <laughs> like, where in the world does that even remotely exist, or why would it remotely exist? And it was actually my friend and collaborator, Jessica Hart, who served as my dramaturg for this show. We were communicating mostly via email and Google Drive. We were sharing stuff via Google Drive. And I was doing a lot, we were doing a lot of talking back and forth to each other on the Marco Polo app, which I just think is the greatest invention because it's basically a way to leave a video message for someone. Um, and then they watch it on their own time. And then, you know, if they like you, they respond to you. And so sometimes I would like get an idea and just need to talk it out with someone. And so I would use that app and say like, this is what I'm thinking. Like, these are the ingredients that I have. And it's a really great app because it's different from an email because you don't, 
necessarily need to like curate it in any way. Like it doesn't necessarily need to make sense. And people get to hear it in your voice as opposed to trying to intuit what it would be in an email or even in a voicemail. Like they get to see your face. And Mm -hmm. so I would leave really long messages for Jessica saying, you know, these are the ingredients I have, but I don't know what the frame is. And eventually because of those Marco Polo conversations, she said, I really think that maybe this should be like a kid's show, but like a kid's show for adults. <laughs> and I said, yep, that's it. That's exactly what it is. It's a kid's show. It's not for adults. It's specifically for millennials because they are a very maligned group of people. And technically I am one. Um, I won't say exactly how old I am, but I'm what's called like the elder millennial generation. So like we're old enough to remember you know, like analog internet and my so-called life. Sometimes we're called the Jordan Catalano generation because of that. But like, I'm on the elder edge of it. And so I was like, this is going to be a children's show for millennials. And that's really what got me started writing. Because then I could write to that idea, at least, even though everything I wrote obviously didn't get used. But that gave me like a way into the material. Because I had a bunch of monologues and you know, bits and ideas and obviously songs for the main character, not necessarily my uterus, but for the main character to sing. But I didn't really know how they all came together. So I'm hearing from you that you talked to other people. I mean, it seems self-evident, but like not everybody does that. Some people like to go into their rooms and just write by themselves and Mm -hmm. then they come out with a thing to share. But it sounds like part of your process was having conversations with with lots of people. Absolutely. And I really want to like emphasize that because I I feel very maligned by by people for whom writing is their first thing. Like it's the thing they do. I get very self-conscious about calling myself a writer because I don't write every day. And even if I'm working on a specific project, like writing every day is not the thing that gets me going. It's collaboration with other people and acknowledgement that my idea is great, but the idea for how to execute it best might not be mine. Like there might be a smarter idea in the room. And for me, there's always a smarter idea in the room. And so, yeah, a lot of my writing was inspired or uplifted by other people's ideas. And I didn't, it's not saying like everyone else gave me an idea and then I just did what they said. Like sometimes Jessica would say, what about this? And I would say, no, I don't think that's right. Um, Do you have any other ideas? Like I was still the person making the decisions and writing to what seemed to work well for my piece. But yes, I've always, I'm, I'm still an actor first. And so doing stuff in the room and then having conversations in the room and then going away and writing and then coming back and saying, this is what I've got. And then, you know, looking at the dramaturg and then eventually Carolyn, the director and saying like, what do you think about this? And I have always relied very heavily on collaborators, both as a writer of solo performance and a performer of solo performance. Cause I'm totally aware that even when it's solo, you can't do it in a vacuum and I really can't do it in a vacuum. When you had to sit down to actually write the th- the words that you were going to say, how did you do that? In short spurts and always on paper. And that is, I think, I think that might be an artist's way thing is that you should always do it on paper because it, you're less likely to edit. Whereas on a computer, you can just hit backspace and then that thing never gets to see the light of day, really. But definitely in short spurts. I'm very easily distracted when it comes to stuff that I'm not so excited about doing. I mean, I was excited to write the show, but, you know, writing is still a very solitary space. 
And so I would say, I'm going to work on this for 30 minutes. And then regard, like, unless I'm on a roll, I'm going to stop and I'm going to do something else. Um, And it's going to be something else like unrelated to this task, unrelated to this show altogether. And there would be times where the, the phone alarm would go off and I would still be writing. I'd be like, no, I'm good. I'm good to go. And then, you know, I would see that idea through to the end. But, you know, the iron does not always strike. It's sometimes, you know, you're sitting there with a pen in your hand and hoping for something to materialize. And sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't. But that was like the thing that was critical for me was like not trying to shame myself into writing and not trying to force it if it wasn't there, because then it's like really not fun. And then you're like, why am I doing this at all? So trying to to lean, like again, to lean into the work when when the ideas are flowing and then when they're not flowing to just pause and say, gonna take a break. So you had a deadline because you were premiering at the Fringe Festival yeah. in Cincinnati Did you have readings along the way of your work in progress? No. Basically what kicked it into high gear. So Fringe was, began like June 1st. I think, yeah, that was our first performance, June 1st. And our tech was sometime that prior weekend, Memorial Day weekend. My memory is, is that it was around March that Jessica said, I think this is a children's show for adults. And that really like helped me a lot because up until then I had no idea what the show was. And then I wrote to that very slowly. I'm not going to pretend like all of a sudden it was all there. I wrote to that idea very slowly. And basically what happened is because of that concept, because of that idea, is I began writing bits. Very often we think of playwrights as writing in order. Like this scene is here. You know, they start with like an opening scene and then like they may jump around. But for my purposes, and also because of the nature of what a children's show is, I basically began writing segments. This is the segment that's all about menstruation because that is a part of having a uterus. (laughs) So I would write bits about that. And that would be like, you know, a segment, so to speak. And then we knew like, oh, it's a kid's show. So we probably need an intro. So Christopher wrote, I said, I want I want an intro song. And this was what was great about working with Christopher is that I could say, I want a song like this. And then he would just go write it. He's really, really great at creating pastiche when you tell him what you want. So I said, the theme song for this show should be a mixture of Sesame Street, the Sesame Street theme and the Mr. Rogers theme. I said, I don't know what the lyrics are going to be about yet. Like, I don't know what that is, but let's start with the music and then we can add lyrics later. So we wrote that. And then I knew that I was going to need, you know, some sort of intro to the, you know, quote, studio audience, which is also, you know, the real audience for the theater. So I was like, yeah. And then I definitely did an intro talking about like, what is this show? Oh, it's a a show for millennials, blah, blah, blah. So that was, that's basically the answer to your question is I had a bunch of segments and I didn't know what the connective tissue for each of those segments was going to be, but I knew that I had a bit about menstruation, a bit about, you know, your mother wanting you to have kids. And that's an awkward conversation when you tell her you're not. I had segments, but the director and, and Jessica, the dramaturg to a certain extent really helped me figure out is what is that connective tissue? Because that's like transitions, especially when you're writing it and you're going to be performing it, it's really hard to think about what the transitions between things are going to be. So that's how the writing came. It was in, it was definitely very isolated, isolated bits. 
Um, which, you know, for a kid's show, that really is, it works to your advantage. Um, segments on those things are never particularly long anyway. But also in a way, like writing to, you know, writing to the concept. I know this was very well received in Cincinnati and you are looking ahead to remount it. How much is going to change between the first showing and subsequent showings based on the feedback? Like, how are you going to handle that rewriting process if you are planning to do any kind of editing? I am. And how the question of how much remains to be seen right after, well, not right after, but a couple of weeks. I basically moved right after the Fringe Festival was over. I left Cincinnati and came back to Raleigh. So, but shortly after I arrived, I had a FaceTime conversation with both my director, who was in Cincinnati, and my dramaturg, who was in New York. Again, use your technology, folks. You're already paying for it. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. we had a, what we call the postmortem meeting, where I talked to, we all basically spoke about what we would change, what the things that we, you know, we started with the good. What do you really like about the show? What really struck the show for you. And, you know, my, obviously my director had seen it, my dramaturg hadn't, so she could only go based on the script. So we, all three of us talked about what we really loved about the work, what we thought maybe had room in it to grow or needed maybe more polishing that couldn't happen in the, you know, basically three week period that we rehearsed. And then we talked very briefly, and I do mean briefly, about what the audience response was, which is an interesting it's it's really could be a whole other podcast episode, Tamara, because I knew I knew that I was writing a show for people my age and younger. Like I said, like I'm on the elder end of the millennial spectrum, and Cincy Fringe has basically like two large contingents. Like it's really like the people under forty, like me, at least for a, a few more years, and then the people over forty, like these. Um, some of whom are boomers, but most of whom are Gen Xers that very often frequent the festival. And the difference in response between those two groups of people was really astonishing. And so, Hmm. you know, we acknowledged that there was a distinct difference in response dependent on age, also to, to a smaller extent dependent on gender, but definitely on age. And, you know, like I said, the conversation was very brief. I said, the reason I didn't like it is because it's not their, it's not their experience. And that's totally fine. And I'm not offended that they didn't like it. I think one of the quotes was that it was just too political, which is hilarious because there's nothing, I, I don't, I mean, the personal's political, that quote, blah, 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 but it's not a show about politics at all. It's literally just a show about a woman that doesn't want to have kids and the reasons why she doesn't want to have kids. That's all it's about. But I just love that people were like, oh, it's just too, po-. like the older people were like, oh, it's just too political. I was like, that's hilarious. But anyway, that was that was a part of the process that I really wanted to happen because unlike Virgin Cookbook, which was like a super personal show that I was like, I can't ever perform it again. It's about my grandfather's death. I can't possibly fathom like doing that a, a series of times over a series of years. But this show, I think, has a lot of legs, and it's dealing with a lot of issues that are very much, honestly, present in our culture right now. Student loan debt, crippling the economy, crippling the lives of millennials, um, not having access to health care. I am at this moment in the time of the virus uninsured. Uh, it's dealing with a lot of things that... And also, like I don't think people... A lot of people who are my mother's age... Love to talk about, oh, those stupid kids, those stupid millennials. And I'm like, guys, millennials are almost 40. 
Right. You're talking about Gen Z. Those are the kids that are currently in college. Those are like my partner's kids. They're like that age. Millennials are adults. Many of them have kids. And yes, they still have crippling student debt and they still have insecurity when it comes to healthcare. Like the peep, the kids, first of all, stop talking, whining about the kids because it just makes you sound like your parents. And also like acknowledge that there's a whole generation of people who are adults under you that are really struggling. Yeah. So that was like a really important part of the process because I felt like this was a show that is still very relevant topically. And I think as time goes on in our present tense, we'll continue to be very relevant. If you wanted to advise someone who was interested in writing a play for solo performance, what advice would you give to that person? I think people secretly want to do this, but then when they actually start to do it, it seems very overwhelming. Yeah. My advice is find your people. And what that means is the people that you trust to help guide you in your vision. You know, like you've interviewed so many people on this podcast with such different and vast talents. And I can't think of one of them that has ever said, yeah, I do this all by myself with absolutely no assistance or help or support. And Mm -hmm. I think that a, that people that maybe are not as familiar with solo performance kind of assume like it's a one man band. And I know that there are people that function that way and good for them. (laughs) Uh, But if, especially if you are wanting to do this and starting out in this, and I've, you know, I've had friends approach me and say like, you know, would you do that? Like, would you be my accountability person and help me? And I'm like, yes, because it's so much easier to do it when it's not your idea, when, you know, when you're not married to it in a certain way. But yeah, find the people that you trust, um, like find an artistic, an artistic family. And, you know, a family really can be two people. So, you know, if there's one person that you're like, I really trust this person to, to help me see it through, to help me to bounce ideas off of. And that's what's really important is like someone that maybe doesn't think and or tell stories exactly the way that you do but who respects the way that you tell stories, understands the way that you tell stories and what your strengths are as a performer, as an actor, find those people, that person, and let them be the person that's like, okay, like this is where I see this is going. And here's, here are some prompts to, to sort of spark your writing and to, to really just bounce ideas off of. I had no idea, honestly, that the uterus was going to sing. I did not see that. I did not see, first of all, great, awesome. Now as a puppeter, uh, as a puppeteer, I have to figure out how to make this thing, you know, realistically saying there's another problem to solve. But it was definitely not my idea. One, either Jessica or Carolyn said, I think the, I think the uterus wants to sing. And I was like, well, damn. And so what does this song sound like? Cause like, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to my musician man friend and say, so what does this song sound like? And Carolyn said, I think it should be like Ursula. It should be, you know, poor unfortunate souls type song about how she has to destroy the person that's housing her in order to have kids. Because so few people talk about like how many women die from ovarian cancer every year and, and or uterine cancer. And so that became like a thing in the show is, oh, she's going to sing about how she's, you know, going to develop um, abnormal cells 
so yeah, find your people, find the people that their specialty doesn't have to be solo performance. Like Carolyn had never directed a solo show before this one, but I knew that she understood my language. She knew what my strengths were as a performer. She had never directed puppets before, but you know, that was a new skill she acquired because again, she knew what the purpose of that character in the story was. And then, you know, I could figure out the puppet stuff on my own. So find your people. And then if you are not like already tied to a performance date, just set a deadline. Like that's the hardest thing for me is I write best under pressure, (laughs) which, you know, with people saying like, now's the time to write while you're social distancing. I'm like, no, it's not. I have nothing to write for. Like (laughs) coming up, like time doesn't exist anymore. Um, But like try and like let that other person or those people that are your artistic family be the people that say, this is when it should be ready. And like ready is a very loose word. Like tech weekend that script was still developing. I think we went through like, I think there were seven or eight drafts. I think by the time tech came, we were on draft seven. And I think there was one more draft where I just finalized things and that was eight. But yeah, like if I show you draft one of my script and then I show you draft eight, they look nothing alike. So ready is a very loose phrase. And if you have the ability, or if you have the time in your schedule, like don't assume that, you know, when you say this is the due date and then you turn it in, like that it's not going to continue to morph once you start to rehearse it, once you start to practice it, once you realize, oh, that transition doesn't work because tonally, you know, what we end on isn't great for what we go to or whatever it is. Just give yourself space to know that it's going to continue to morph like any good theatrical piece does. Try to set deadlines. I really, I understand that struggle. Oh God, like I was like, oh, there's a there's a show on June 1st. Something needs to be performed on June 1st. I don't know what it's going to be. Like I really didn't know even on May 1st what it was going to be. That script was nowhere near done on a month before it was to open. Things happen fast. So yeah, try to write to, to a date, even if you don't have a performance date set up already and find your artistic family. Obviously the uterus puppet is very intriguing. <laughs> and is a bold choice, especially now that we all know that it sings. Mm-hmm. There are some people who would not go there. And by that, I mean, that's some out of the box kind of thinking. Why do you think you're able to take those kinds of risks? Is it something that's innate in you or is it training or I feel like I've done some strange things in some of the shows that I put together and it all felt, (laughs) and it all felt very natural. I was like, it all, it it made complete logical sense to me. Like it didn't seem strange or out of the box. It was like, well, of course this would happen, you know? (laughs) And so you were talking about like secular versus theater jobs. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there is a quote, you know, secular versus like theatrical way of thinking, Mm -hmm. but these choices seem very natural to me. And Although I'm surprised that you have this puppet. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, uteruses, they're important. Like, let's make, let's have one sing. That sounds great, you know? So talk about how you're able to access that creative spirit. It would be ridiculous for me to not say that going to Sarah Lawrence really enhanced my, enhanced and expanded my concept of what is possible in theater. And possible might not be the right word. I always knew what was possible, but I guess what I was capable of making, I think that's probably the more precise, specific statement. 
I mean, you know, Tamara, you know that because you and Cheryl were doing creativity school back in 2011 (laughs) or 2010. And you like, I had ideas about Virgin Cookbook before I knew that that's what it was called. I knew that I wanted to write a show about being a person that was abstinent in their 20s. At that point, it was 20s, and then it grew into 30s. So like, obviously, like that was something that was in me. That was a story I wanted to tell that was always there. And part of the reason that I chose Sarah Lawrence, and I really won't turn this into an SLC commercial because it's really expensive. And that's one of the reasons (laughs) I have all this debt. But one of the reasons I chose SLC is because their program is interdisciplinary. I got to take a puppetry class with one of the best puppeteers in the country, with a couple of the best puppeteers in the country. Actually, I got to take it with more than one. I got to take a solo playwriting course. I got to take dance classes as part of my education anyway. So I was already, I was just leaning into stuff that I was interested in, in a theatrical context. And so it really just expanded my vision of what I could make as an individual and how to do that, quite frankly, collaboratively with other people, with other art makers, with some of the same abilities and also very different abilities. And just in terms of like subject matter, and I guess like taking risks, I kind of like roll my eyes a little bit at the word risk because I obviously, you know, the running joke is, is like, when am I going to make a solo performance that's like not about a body part? You know, that's not about my hymen. That's not about my vagina or my vulva. Like when, like, this is now a thing. Um, I've Someone already said like, oh, this is a trilogy and the next one's going to be menopause. And I was like, wait, I have to wait 15 years before I write the next part of this trilogy. I have a vague memory of talking about Virgin Cookbook and the response to it and people talking about how feminist it was. And I was like, oh, is it? Like, I was really just writing about how annoyed I was by people commenting on my sexuality. But this, you know, going into this process, I had, you know, that knowledge, that lens. And I, again, leaned really hard into that. I was like, oh, yeah, like when I write stuff about being about my woman, my experience as a woman it always comes out feminist, even if I'm not writing about being a feminist. Like, you know, this show is not about being a feminist. It is about choice. Obviously it's about, you know, choice to bear children or not, but I'm not saying no one should have babies. I'm just saying we shouldn't fault women that don't want to have them. And so going into this, I knew that that was a really important message and that I was not the only 30 something woman that felt that way or had a mother that was really you know, we're fine now, but, you know, disappointed by the fact that I wasn't going to have kids. And to me, it's not risky, A, because we've been watching men talk about their sexuality and their urges for however many years in the American theater. And also just the thing that has been the most amusing post this show, which yes, won an award. It was very nice. But the most rewarding thing has been people saying, I think of you every time I, bir- I take my birth control, Lamarith, or <laughs> I changed my birth control alarm on my phone to the one that you used in the show, which is the one that I use in real life because I loved your, so- your show so much. Or, oh, Lamarith, like these are l- literal texts I get. Or Lamarith, like, I'm really cramping really bad today. And all I can think about is my uterus yelling at me in an Italian accent, which <laughs> just has an Italian accent ish. It's really a New York accent, but it, I guess it came out Italian because I'm terrible at dialects. Not <laughs> my so 
Is it risky? Maybe. Is it risky because we're talking about women's bodies in a very blunt way and we don't do that as a society because women have been shamed for their sexuality and for having bodies and minds and having any independent thoughts of their own forever? Sure. I don't really think there's anything particularly risky about my show, except that, yes, I'm giving voice to to women's bodies and to unpopular women's point of views about childbearing, about capitalism, and how I think it's awful for our society, about stuff that people care about, and especially, especially lots of women of my generation, for sure. So in that way, it's not risky at all. I'm just writing. I'm very much in the writing what I know space and what do I know better than my body. And I know that my experiences as a woman, as a Black woman, as a woman without children, as a woman with student debt, as an unmarried woman, which is a whole nother show I should write, those experiences are very personal to me, but they are not singular. And there are a plethora of women that have those experiences and deserve to sit in a theater and sing about menstruation and have fun and laugh doing it. There's nothing that gives me more joy than a song about menstruation that's also a sing-along. If that's risky, then gosh darn it, then I'm a risk taker and come see my show when it happens in Raleigh. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything that you would like to talk about before we wrap up? Just... It's okay to not suffer making your art. That's what I want to end with. It is okay to to feel supported and not overwhelmed and not pulling your hair out and not anxious and to just have an artistic process that, that is without suffering or trauma. That is a possible thing and that is the world I want to live in and the space that I'm trying to create for myself, for other people that I collaborate with, and for my students especially. You know, they've heard this whole struggling artist myth, and I'm trying to beat it out of them before they graduate. You can make art and still be a healthy human being and take care of yourself and not traumatize yourself in the process. I love it. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom, and I can't wait to see the show when it goes up. I can't either. It's going to be good. 